0: Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. On behalf of the International Wildlife Film Festival, I'll be taking the stage at the Roxy on Wednesday, April twenty-sixth, for a multimedia adventure performance regarding my experiences working as an expedition guide in Africa. I'll talk Zoo about Montana animal behavior and spotlight elephant disease. and rhino conservation. And each week, Tickets have always sold out for doctor these doctor events, so secure yours and now by calling the Roxy well adventure or visiting wildlifefilms.org. If you're a parent or a grandparent, window, I encourage you, you to bring a young person online, and attend at my second presentation trouble.net. on Thursday, April 26th and now here's at 4.15. Your host, Grand Canyon I hope to see you at the Roxy on April 26th or 27th. Until then, keep it tuned to the Trail 1033. Today, The Trail Has Traveled is being recorded in the valley. We are here in Missoula with Lara Tomov. She is a filmmaker who keeps her ear to the ground for messages that can improve the well-being of human communities and the ecosystems they're a part of. Her work as a cinematographer has taken her around the world with productions for the Travel Channel, Discovery, and independent documentaries. After growing up in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, then living out of state for a decade, She is happily based back home in Montana. She founded her media brand Stories for Action in 2020, which holds a mission to use the power of storytelling to create connections around a thriving planet for all. Stories for Action and other partners launched the Life in the Land project in 2022, which is a series of films and podcasts elevating the value of community-guided and holistic approaches within Montana's landscapes. First and foremost, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the trail less traveled.
1: Thank you so much, Mandela. Thanks for having me.
0: My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood?
1: I grew up in the Bitterroot Valley. I'm in Western Montana and had parents that made sure that we were constantly engulfed in the natural world. It was never anything fancy, you know, not doing any official recreation or having fancy gear or anything it was more just throw us outside until the sun goes down kind of thing you know playing in mountains and and creeks and living in a tent for (laughs) periods of time you know by choice that was always instilled in us my sister and I is that respect and that connection to place and the respect for the land and the waters and the animals and and the communities that we were a part of, and to always be engaged in your community and respect for native communities, you know, that called these lands home for thousands of years. And that was really a lot of my upbringing in this beautiful place in Montana. That being said, I did itch to leave, you know, as a teenager, I just wanted to go and maybe took for granted a lot of things of growing up in such a beautiful place. But I just always had a curiosity to go and see the world. And my grandmother grew up in Argentina and immigrated to the States. And my grandfather spent his life working with indigenous communities, um, a lot around Montana, but around the world. They always instilled in us this need to immerse ourselves in different cultures and understandings of the world. And so I wanted to always use storytelling to do that. And really with a mission to uplift stories that helped the environments and the people around the world. So I left at, you know, age of 17, (laughs) went to Boston to film school um, so I could learn how to do that. I fell into the world of camera, really fell in love with cinematography while I was there, got a lot more into narrative film as well, even though my original focus was documentary. So just all things camera. And that to me really married my love of technical and kind of being like a gear junkie with the artistry, I saw as a way to be able to travel and find a profession that allowed me to, you know, kind of feed this constant curiosity I had of everything. I also always wanted to go into biology and different fields just because everything, every new thing I learned about seemed to, to make me curious. But I knew that in the world of film and storytelling, I could. You know, engage with people that worked in all of those fields so I could kind of cater to my constant changing of interests. (laughs) I studied abroad in Costa Rica when I was 19 or 20, and when I was done with my studies there, I backpacked through Central America for a few months solo, shooting my own documentary on the health impacts of workers in the banana plantations, in the Dolan Chiquita banana plantations. And that was pretty much just me and my little handy cam and my backpack and hopping chicken buses and, you know, finding a pay phone to contact people to, that would be up for interviewing with me. And I think there was a lot of maybe naivete there of just like, this is what filmmaking is and you just go for it. And didn't really tell like my parents what I was doing until after, um, even though my mom always pushed me to do things exactly like that. (laughs) And that was when I really had that first hand experience of holding somebody's story and sitting down with people in their living rooms who had experienced death of family members from pesticide use in these banana plantations, long life sicknesses their children that were born with defects because of the pesticide use in these plantations. I visited protest camps in Nicaragua where they're protesting the government, as well as, you know, the American fruit companies that use the pesticides. And hearing people in those protest camps that said, we don't really care about the money that's involved in the settlement that's going on now. We just want our story to get out there and we want the world to know what's happening. And so that's when it first really viscerally hit me that power of sharing story and elevating story and also the responsibility that that holds. And so that I put into a short film that we put out there back when I was 21 and tried to get messages out through that. But it was also just really a a good kickstart into adventure and putting myself out there and trying to put myself into spaces with my camera to use that as a tool where I could And there's lots of adventures within that experience that, you know, to me thinking back, I was like, oh, I guess I was only like 20 when that happened. But now, you know, at the time you think that you can handle all that. And I also have always had a love and interest in Latin American culture. And like I said, my grandmother grew up in Argentina. And and also just the politics of Central and South America have always intrigued me. And just the geographies there and the places. And I've always just tried to find any opportunity to get there and be engaged with people who live there and um, listen to their joys and challenges of life. And I went, when I was 22, down to Peru, again with just me and my camera, and my mom actually came along for that one to be my camera assistant. And we were covering a story of an organization down there called Camino Verde that's deep in the jungles of Peru, working with local folks to engage in agroforestry to kind of combat what was and is still happening you know a lot of the forests being slashed and burned for agricultural purposes, of no fault of the people doing it, right? It was a lot of folks moving from the highlands down to the jungle lands, and that's what they knew was farming, right? And so I think that was a concept that wasn't really known publicly. It was just like, oh, the rainforests are being cleared because of timber industry or anything. But when you look deeper into it, it's like, no, it's all these other elements of agriculture and because of lack of opportunity for folks, right? They're just trying to feed their families and, you know, put food on their table. And that was the economy that they knew. So this organization was finding ways to actually work with what grew in the forest naturally to create some types of employment for the people who lived there, as well as learning about medicinal plants and, um, you know, working with different folks down there is what we captured on camera. And that was a different short film that I put together. You know, to me, it was like three days on a boat and two days hiking into the jungle. That's the type of thing that I would seek out, right? Especially in my 20s. Like that, to me, was the ideal. Being surrounded by venomous <laughs> creatures in the jungle and life and languages that I didn't understand, a lot of indigenous languages in the the forest there. That was the ideal of what I sought out, right? Lara, I love
0: what you said about seeking out being uncomfortable. I just think it's important to be uncomfortable from time to time. And it makes me think that you and I should work together one day. Because <laughs> you never know. Please.
1: <laughs> that's why I usually travel by myself, because yeah. it's hard to find the people that are okay with uncomfortable, and that's most of my time. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure, 100%. <laughs> the discomfort is, I guess, in a lot of ways, what I've always looked for. And so I moved from there into the film world, moving to L.A., working in the camera department, um, working in both the feature film world as well as, you know, kind of adventure travel content behind the camera. And so that gave me a great opportunity to travel the world, which was great. And I'm grateful I had that opportunity to go to so many different countries and geographies. And usually it was a lot of like the outdoor travel channel, discovery channel type of content, which in my 20s was a great way to travel (laughs) on someone else's time. But I also tried to make it something that also connected to my passion. And you know, sometimes that was staying for my own personal time afterwards to really engage with the people who lived here, the geographies, but also in that work, just to witness all the different ways that people live around the world, the ways they engage with their place. That was a hunger that I've always had. And that content to me wasn't feeding my soul. So I did try to find a different way to navigate my work to address more um, environmental and social issues that were growing. And I took a little step away from film. I'd kind of gotten jaded by the film industry. I'd seen amazing you know, feature-length documentaries coming out that I'm like, oh, this is going to change the world. And people might talk about it for a little bit, but then people would move on, right? Or a lot of times the people who would sit down for a two-hour film are the people who might already be... You know, of that side of belief. So and sometimes it was a lot of preaching to the choir. And so I was just wondering, is there is there a different way that I can hit this work and address this work to have a greater impact? And you know, maybe that's going into policy or into biology, like I always wanted to. And so I took a step away from film, went back to school at UCLA, and then did the sustainability certificate there to just kind of get a round robin of learning about all these different things you know it touched on technology and renewables and the economics of it but also uh, sustainable food systems and you know we touched on policy and um, sciences as well and so it helped me to see all of these possibilities for how our world can get to a more sustainable place and I worked at the nature conservancy in southern california in the space of policy and biology so completely new to me you know Definitely out of my comfort zone, but that's what I wanted, right? I wanted to learn how to like hit the work from a different angle. And we were doing amazing things there in L.A., you know, working with the mayor's office, transportation, housing, all these different entities, public schools, and then us representing the environmental part of that on how to rewild the L.A. River and have things that benefited all of those entities, you know. And that's to me where I really saw the magic happening of having all these different people come together and be like, oh, wow, like this is where things actually get done. If you like can bring different entities together and get some really amazing holistic work done. And so to me, that really sparked something that I'm like, this is where it's at. Like this is we need to be addressing all of our social and environmental pressures with this holistic approach. And the more and more I'd ask the folks I worked with, you know, who worked in the policy and biology spaces, I said, you know, where are the gaps in this work to help move it forward so that I can try to find a way to fill that gap? And they were like, you know, we need more storytellers. We have scientists and policymakers. We need to have the people that help to share these stories and for them to recognize that that's where it's at and that you can have the most important scientific information. But in a lot of ways, it doesn't mean anything if you can't engage with the public that's actually gonna create the change to make that sustainable system move forward. And so I leaned back into the storytelling space right around when I moved back home to Montana and started Stories for Action. That's the voice of Lara Tomov. She is a filmmaker
0: and communications consultant. She founded her media brand Stories for Action in 2020, which holds a mission to use the power of storytelling to create connections around a thriving planet for all. Stories for Action and other partners launched the Life in the Land Project in 2022, which is a series of films and podcasts elevating the value of community-guided and holistic approaches within Montana's landscapes. We have a lot in common, Laura. Sitting over here scribbling notes about the Camino Verde in Peru and our background is similar too in terms of me wanting to take a step back from guiding. I spent half my life guiding expeditions around the world because I truly believe the more people who experience these wild places are more likely to walk away and fight to protect them. So that's why I kind of moved into more of the policy realm as well with my current role at the National Wildlife Federation. You know, what can we do to implement change? And I love what you said about coming together, creating community, you know, realizing that we do actually want a lot of the same things. I'd love now to dive into the Life in the Land project
1: Yeah, thank you. So Life in the Land, we produced under my media brand, Stories for Action, which I started a couple years ago, um, shortly after I moved back home to Montana. And Stories for Action kind of has this mission to focus on short-form storytelling and really with a mission to reach folks that may not sit down, as I was saying, sit down to watch a two-hour film about a certain topic. And so how do we create these quicker types of content so that it can accidentally fall in front of some folks or that we can you know screen it around to different places and put it in front of legislators and that kind of thing kind of in these bite-sized pieces as well as just the content itself being focused on bridging divides bringing people together sparking people's realization of their commonalities you know so just all things that kind of have that common theme is the, the content that we wanted to touch on about two years ago a group had contacted me. They were a working group of folks from around the state, you know, ranchers, people in watershed groups, conservation, who were all involved in collaborative conservation in Montana. And they just wanted to further the story of, you know, what they were involved in and what they were seeing because they knew that it was happening. But when they looked around at, you know, headlines and public narratives, there was just a lot of divisiveness and seeming that you know, in Montana, everybody is divided around these issues, but they knew better, right? And so they wanted to help that narrative to rise above. And so myself and that working group, we developed what became the Life in the Land Project. And, you know, it's all pretty low budget and a quick timeline. And so we, we produced what we could. I hit the ground running right after we kind of greenlit the project, filming four films And then I also put together 25 podcast episodes. And each of those films focuses on a different region in Montana and hears from about four or five voices from that region who are all closely connected to the landscape there and speaking to these messages of locally guided and holistic work on the landscape. So it it kind of went from being, quote, collaborative conservation on its face, but really we immediately had it move more into these themes of relationships and messages that help to foster healthy relationships, not only between one another and folks that might have different values, but also relationships between ourselves and the landscape. And so that's kind of the overarching theme between the four films. The film that you had mentioned that will be at the Wildlife Film Fest on April 26th, Here's from Voices from Blackfeet Nation. That film was co-produced by Leilani Upham, who's a Blackfeet tribal member and storyteller and film producer as well. We hear from the Sealy Swan region some work around locally guided conservation, youth outreach. We hear from Lumber Company up there to kind of hear what it can be for a natural resource company when they are locally owned Mm -hmm. and they do have a stewardship lens in their work, what that can look like, you know. And then also we hear from voices from the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes in that episode, knowing that culturally they have those connections thousands of years long to what's now the Sealy-Swan region, but then also current jurisdictional boundaries are shared with those two regions. And so stories of, of past and present cultural and conservation work We hear from Central Montana Plains. That's a lot around voices from ranchers that are partnering with, quote, environmental conservation organizations and what that can look like when the work is truly guided by the local communities, which in that case are the ranching community, Mm -hmm. and what it can look like when the ranchers are leading the conservation efforts. And then also how it really ties into the health of those rural communities, because what they realized their work very quickly went from conservation work and helping ranchers to be profitable so that they could take risks. Those practices that ranchers take to be more sustainable on the landscape can be risky financially, right? So if those ranchers can be more profitable and have that wiggle room to be able to take those risks to be able to better steward the land. But they quickly realized that it's very community centric. And so it's looking at these different community groups there in central Montana that are not only working for rancher profitability, but also turning vacated buildings in their small town into community gathering spaces or housing. Or coffee shops, you know, for people to come and gather and create community. They recognize that the health of their community is directly related to their ability to steward the landscape that they're a part of. And so that film really looks at those connections. And then the fourth one here is from the Big Hole Valley, kind of around the work of the Big Hole Watershed Committee, which is an entity that brings together the ranchers, the anglers, conservation to do some really neat Voluntary conservation around drought management and endangered species, and I think those who may know of the Big Hole Valley, social dynamics before the 90s could be very divided in that valley between anglers and ranchers, and so to see those folks gather in a meeting place once a month and talk about how they're going to, you know, better steward the health of that river is really monumental, and they've become a great model for the world, really, (laughs) on, on what it can be to come together and put our differences aside for the greater good. And then we're currently, last fall, we jumped into the second season of Life in the Land. And we're currently working on two additional films for the project, one around community connections to the Upper Yellowstone River, and then one hearing from the community of Wyola on the Crow Reservation about some really exciting community development work that they're doing. That's all locally guided, it's all holistic, and really just showing that when you have the people who live in a community and who are connected to that place leading the work, you have work that is longer lasting, that's more meaningful, that has a whole array of benefits because they know the work that needs to be done to help their school, the health of their landscape, the health of their community. The people who live there know that place better than anyone. And so who better to have lead that work than that local community. So it's really about uplifting these entities that are working from a, a community level with their approach. And then the Blackfeet Nation film, you know, when you talk about relationships with the landscape that obviously is going to be very unique, right? And so the folks that we spoke with in that community of, you know, how would this film best serve your community? We want to speak to our own community members. We want our own community members to know about the work that's happening here and the need to reconnect to the land, to empower our own people. And so that's really the mission of the Blackfeet Nation film. It's not you know, a message for non-Native folks on how to be better partners to Native communities. I think maybe that was an idea that that film would be because it's about collaborative conservation. What serves that community more is letting their own community know and empower their own community and that there are disconnects that have happened because of colonizing practices deliberate to separate people from their culture and from their own landscape. And so access to those things has been disconnected. And so in that film, it's hearing from folks that are involved in different areas of work within the Blackfeet Nation, really speaking to reconnection to the land, the empowerment that comes from reconnecting to the land and to traditional life ways and how those things don't live in the past and how to uplift those cultural values to carry the community forward in a good way. And so that's kind of the general message of that film. And then the podcast episodes are each person's interview in its entirety. And so for the films, you know, we can only use a few minutes from each interview, but they're fantastic interviews that go sometimes over an hour. And so that way you can dig deeper into a certain subject's background and their work by going into their podcast episode and getting a deeper dive into their work. We're thrilled that the films have been getting into film festivals and they've been around the country and some international, but they're not film festival films. That wasn't our objective. Um, Really, the purpose of these films was to create a tool because they're out there online for free for people to use, a tool for organizations and communities and agencies, entities to use to uplift their own work for the people who we featured, to empower the communities that we featured, for them to use for fundraising, you know, because that's a big challenge in all of this locally guided work is that it's a hustle, right, to get it funded. So we want them to be able to use that to support them in that way, but also for other communities who can relate to what they see on screen to inspire them to also adopt these approaches and these holistic locally guided approaches. So to have these films kick off these workshops, to kick off these deeper dive discussions, to kind of give a spark of inspiration, you know, and if it's a different community, to then turn and say, okay, now let's take a deeper dive talk about how this approach can work in our own community. Or if it's an organization that's screening the film for their own employees, okay, how can we adjust our work to be a better partner and to be a better collaborator and to, empower local communities that we partner with to really lead the work like truly and not just you know how we word it on the website like how do we really engage in a good way so we really just want the films to be a product and a tool to inspire this approach and uplift the value in this approach so it can be spread globally So the Life in the Land films and podcasts are out there available for free for folks to use as a tool. Um, we just ask that if folks are going to use it in a public setting, like in a workshop or a classroom, that they just send us a quick email or fill out the short form at lifeintheland.org to tell us how they're going to use it. And that way we can just keep track of it on our impact reports.
0: So, Laura, another person I look up to, I look up to you, Laura, but I also look up to Jane Ferguson, and she is a journalist with PBS NewsHour, and she does a lot of special correspondent reporting in Afghanistan with Taliban leaders, and she's often in the war zones, and I wrote to her once, and I asked her if she could ask one question to the people that she's interviewing all over the world, what would it be? And she actually got back to me, and she said, what do you want? That would be her question. And so, My question for you is, you have been documenting stories all over the world, and specifically here in Montana. I'd like to talk to you about the commonalities, you know, the through lines in what you've seen and heard in terms of what people want in our state.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that question that she said she would ask. Because to me, that kind of leads a lot of my work, is asking folks what messages about themselves or their community or their work that they want to put out there that they don't see out there in the public narrative. I think right now, since I am in the quote media and in the space of storytelling, I'm trying to see kind of where these gaps are in messaging and narrative and how to let these constructive messages rise above. I think we're in obviously a very difficult time as far as Messaging public narrative, combating negative narrative, creating divisiveness that type of messaging is very powerful. It gets people engaged. It's human psychology to find a villain in any situation. It's just easier for our brains to process things when we can target a single villain. And I think a lot of media knows that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and grabs on to that. And that's a very dangerous place to be, right? Because when we look at the pressures that our environments are up against, that our communities are up against, which, of course, those things are completely connected, we can't move forward in a good way being disconnected. And it is unfortunate that the majority of the messaging out there, and it's more and more every day, is Divisive and creating that disconnection. And so, not only do we have different forces that are disconnecting us from our natural environments, but they're also strategically disconnecting us from each other. So, that kind of gives multiple layers of putting us in a position where we won't be equipped to handle. these growing pressures that our planet is up against, right? That we can really only address them when we are connected, when we're understanding each other's challenges, when we're listening to each other. And of course, that's easier said than done, right? Like human conflict goes back since humans started walking this planet, right? So it's nothing new. But I do feel like we've generally lost a way to truly listen to each other and to truly understand each other's challenges. And so that's one thing with the Life in the Land films. It's not only to serve the people that we featured and to let them see themselves reflected and to empower them within their own communities, but it's also so that people who think they have nothing in common with a rancher or someone who lives in a rural community or in a tribal community at least gets a glimpse of some of the challenges that they're up against Mm -hmm. so that we can see that we are indeed connected (laughs) and also so that we can stand up for one another, right? So that in public spaces and in private conversations and talking to our decision makers, it's not only about standing up for ourselves and the things that impact our own lives and work, but so that we can also stand up for each other. Mm -hmm. And I think when we get to that point, That's where we have real resiliency, and that's where we really will have some great things move forward as a society. And we do need to get to that point, right? Also, this project is for that purpose, to let people know, like, you know, this is what these communities are up against, and it's not as black and white as people think. I think in Montana, even people that have grown up here think they have certain communities or demographics or... Economies painted as one general thing, like a monolith. And the truth is that there's so much nuance in those communities, in those industries, that we really need to stop generalizing <laughs> entire communities and generalizing entire lines of work and that importance in starting conversations with each other. You know, instead of saying all that rancher is doing is destroying the environment by raising cattle, it's like well actually that rancher knows more about that ecosystem than most people and they know when spring comes earlier and when a certain insect is there that wasn't there before they are connected to that landscape and also if that rancher isn't able to stay in business the first thing that that open space is going to be is a subdivision right and that's putting unsustainable pressures on our land our water fragmenting our wildlife habitat so really it's in everyone's interest to make sure that that person raising our food is able to do it in a way that stewards the land and that is in a place where they're supported, as well as in tribal communities. There is no single tribal community that is a monolith by any means. And there are very nuanced challenges and needs and strengths. And I think what can happen sometimes is that you know, folks from either tribal communities or any community for that matter, or, um, you know, a certain industry might be brought to the decision-making table because it is thought that they will bring a certain opinion that's based on a stereotype, right? And so then when that person actually starts to speak the needs of their community or their own personal opinions, they can be silenced if it doesn't fit that stereotype that they were initially brought to the table in the first place to fill. Mm -hmm. And that's wrong on so many levels, right? So it's just this importance to truly listen, to really truly be open to different voices, and when it comes to tribal leadership on landscapes, which we definitely need, if we're long overdue, to have that be incorporated into these lands that those communities stewarded for thousands of years and they know best on these landscapes, that that needs to be done in a way that's genuine and not just, you know, we say we're doing it in partnership and then they're filling two out of the ten seats at the decision-making table, right? That's not, that's not tribal leadership on that project, to really approach one another in a way that's open and don't have your own story created already in your head when you come to someone. Be open to truly take the guidance of that local community and sit down and listen to them and build that trust, build that relationship, really listen to the true challenges that exist there and what they see as the best way to serve their own community and I think that applies for all communities really and I think a lot of the time just listening to somebody's story and letting folks speak their own truth is so important because when it's left up to somebody else to misinterpret our own story you know sometimes in headlines that have a short turnaround time so they can't dig as deep or, you know, sometimes in our just personal conversations, these generalizations that we can make about people, when that's actually dictating our own story rather than our genuine story that we can only tell ourselves, we just naturally get into defense mode, right? Because we feel like we always have to instantly go defend ourselves because we know what's being said out there in the public narrative is negative, right? And so how do we give folks the chance to own their own story, share their own truth, so they don't feel as much in defense mode anymore, Mm -hmm. where they know that they're gonna be genuinely listened to Mm -hmm. when they're asked about their opinion and don't have to fight for that ability to be heard, I think is is extremely powerful. We're so natural to create these divisive narratives, right? Uh, This us versus them. You know, I grew up in Montana And people would think, oh, because you grew up in Montana, doesn't everybody in Montana know all the challenges of agriculture or, you know, all the challenges of of things that we kind of stereotype to Montana? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, we're also not a monolith as a state, right? Plenty of people in this state don't know anything about the challenges of what agricultural producers are up against or natural resource industries. It's just about taking that generalizing narrative and instead digging deeper to find that nuance in all of those issues. Local communities know their own nuance more than anyone, right? They know they're so connected to their landscape. They're so connected to the needs of the people that live there. So who better to lead the work if you want it to to be long-lasting and more meaningful than those people
0: Laura, let's end your show with three bits of advice that you might like to share with whoever's listening out there.
1: Try to constantly challenge yourself, whether it's in personal conversation or what you're hearing on the news or in a professional space to combat any polarizing narratives that you hear. I think we do it probably without thinking sometimes. (laughs) We like to put it into us versus them. I know in Montana, we hear almost constantly now with like, newcomers versus multi-generation Montanans, that that can be just as negative as not doing anything. Yes, we need to be talking about these issues and these realities. Let's talk about them. But when we talk about them in a divisive way, that gets us nowhere. And so how do we flip that divisive narrative into constructive engagement, and say hey how do we engage with our city council about our growth policy how do we engage with the new neighbor that just moved in who might be a great person but we might have had a you know front up against because they're a newcomer how do we turn that divisive narrative into constructive engagement because yes we need to be always talking about our challenges but how do we do it in a way that's constructive and encouraging people to engage In the solution. Number two, I guess on the theme of adventure, if you are out adventuring to try to really connect to the place, and whether that's in your home area or international travel, how to genuinely and authentically connect to a place and the people who live there when we go on vacations it's you know easy to just go for our own agenda but I think we will get more fruitful experience and connection and create that human connection that we need to improve globally if we do find ways to authentically engage with the people and the place you know and that connects to thinking of who stewarded that land first and What are the challenges that landscape is having? What are the strengths? What are the strengths of that community? You know, try to find opportunities to engage with joy with local communities. You know, if that's like a celebration or going to the local watering hole and striking up conversation with local folks. I just encourage people, create that engagement with place no matter where you're adventuring. The third one, I guess, kind of marrying those things on the concept of engagement. What are things that you could do to improve access to that landscape? You know, look around. Who's not engaging with that space? Maybe seek out what are their barriers to accessing that landscape, to getting out on the land. You know, and sometimes it's as simple as gas money for folks. I think people assume that everybody who grew up in Montana is able to access natural spaces, and I think that's a wrong assumption. And so what can we each do to improve access for people to connect to their natural environments and that can be on a personal level too just calling up someone who maybe just moved here or who never had the opportunity growing up to have you know parents who took them out and recreated or got out on the land call them up and invite them out and also to engage in decision making in your community. If you are involved in a group or city council or anything where you are in a room where you're making decisions, look at who's not in the room or who's not in the space and how do you find ways to create access for those people to engage.
0: Laura Tomov, absolute pleasure to have you on The Trail Less Traveled. Thank you for your time and energy and everything that you're doing for our planet and our community.
1: Thank you so much, Mandela. Such a
0: pleasure. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. And if you miss the premiere, the show is also available as a podcast. You can view the full show archive and learn about our international outreach programs by visiting traillesstravelled.net. I'd like to thank my guest for this evening, Lara Tomov. Lara is a filmmaker who founded her media brand, Stories for Action, in 2020. Along with other partners, she launched the Life in the Land Project in 2022 which is a series of films and podcasts elevating the value of community-guided and holistic approaches within Montana's landscapes. You can view the life in the land at the Roxy Theater on Wednesday, April 26th at 7.30 p.m., part of the International Wildlife Film Festival. My advice for the evening is please support local businesses and please support local festivals such as the International Wildlife Festival. Film Festival at the Roxy Theater. For their 46th year, the International Wildlife Film Festival explores the theme of fight or flight. I look forward to seeing you during the Wild Walk on Earth Day. I will be dressed up as a giraffe, so you probably won't recognize me. And I look forward to seeing our beautiful community getting together to celebrate wildlife. That's it for this week my friends in Missoula, and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Please use your voice and speak up for the wildlife and the wild places that you love.